Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So today is going to be another recent events episode because there's been so many recent events going on. I'm struggling to keep up with it all. Um, It's actually been uh, quite overwhelming really. I I put it down to um, a lot of the the kind of the big names who you want to hear from um, in the UFO world probably had a little bit of a break over the festive period and um, as soon as we got into the new year people started to confirm dates and we just had this last couple of weeks an absolute rush of um, you know high profile guests within the UFO community appearing on podcasts and everything seems to have really kicked off over this last few weeks which is absolutely great to see plenty of of new information to get stuck into but at the same time it's kind of hard to keep up with it all i mean i'm a bit of a podcast addict i'm always listening to to various podcasts and uh all all different angles of of people's approaches to the ufo topic and but i've sort of struggled to manage to get through them all this week so some of them i've not really got to like for example um there's been a couple of Gary Nolan interviews, uh, Dr. Gary Nolan on the Lex Fridman podcast uh, and on Engaging the Phenomenon uh, as well. And uh, I've only managed to listen to about half of the Engaging the Phenomenon one, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover the Gary Nolan ones uh, today, but I might come back to that uh, another time. Um, so we're going to crack on with... First of all, um, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon on Somewhere in the Skies. So obviously Ryan Sprague, uh, Somewhere in the Skies podcast, um, a great podcast and one of the original inspirations for me to start this podcast. And um, on uh, Somewhere in the Skies, Lou and Chris basically were guests uh, over the last few days. And um, really, really interesting interview. It's about an hour long uh, with with both Lou and Chris so it's great to see them side by side and um, for reasons that I'm going to come back to as we go along it's quite interesting to see them actually you know in the same interview uh, to be able to get an idea of 
of seeing them both together kind of gives you a bit more of a bigger picture of, of what each of their angles are that they're going for and that kind of thing so big thanks to ryan sprague for actually putting this thing together and and chrissy newton as well who i believe is now going to be the kind of co-pilot of somewhere in the skies uh, just very good quality interview and, and great to see both lou and chris together talking about things so a few uh, points that i wanted to go through i'm not going to talk about this one too much because i think it's just worth watching the whole thing so i'd recommend everybody go and do that anyway it's actually for some reason a bit hard to find if you type in um lou elizondo chris mellon into youtube it doesn't come up necessarily um straight away but if you just go to the somewhere in the skies youtube channel it's one of the recent videos there so that's how i found it and i think it's going to also be going up on on the, the uh, podcast side of things like spotify and everything as well uh, as time goes along so you'll be able to check it out there uh, but i think with things like that it's sometimes good to see the video because you can get a bit more of a bigger picture of what somebody's saying i think on on, on video but anyway one of the comments i wanted to focus on was Lou Elizondo, it's around about the 28 minute mark. Uh, Lou Elizondo says, quote, the deck logs for the Princeton are available. In fact, deck logs for ships are available at the National Archives. The deck logs for the Princeton for that particular day during the Tic Tac encounter are missing. So someone somewhere is not comfortable with this conversation occurring. So then one has to ask who it is and why unquote so obviously what lou's talking about there is during the nimitz incident the tic-tac encounter there's been quite a bit of things coming up about that particular incident that have really made me think over this last couple of weeks uh, and as i'm going to get to later on uh, in this episode chris mellon has done an article um about the uh, the air force in particular questioning why the air force are dragging the feet on this topic so much and, and not being as cooperative as what you might hope and there's been a lot of speculation about the the radar tapes from the Nimitz event being confiscated apparently by somebody turning up in a helicopter and that's it's not necessarily 100% verified but there is talk of that as having took place and and when you hear about you know the fact that the deck logs for the Princeton are missing for that particular point when the tic tac incident happened it does kind of back up the fact of some interference there you know allegedly by the air force specifically taking the deck logs for the day when the tic tac encounter happened uh, and it's it's exactly right what luella zondo saying there why would they do that and who's doing it and it certainly seems to be when you consider that luella zondo and chris mellon on this interview are having this interview specifically in the context of chris having just released his article about the air force it seems like a pretty strong indication that lou elizondo is saying the air force are involved with this and they are covering something up there so why is that um so yeah very interesting but he also goes on to say quote it's not just the tapes missing that were alleged taken allegedly by helicopter there's other bits of information that are just missing unquote so again, you know, pretty clearly suggesting there that what what has been talked about in the past of the Air Force taking these uh, radar tapes, uh, the, all of the the other you know surrounding bits of data that you would expect maybe you could look into are just gone. 
So it really sort of, you know, it makes you think where there's smoke, there's fire, and it's very likely that the Air Force are involved in, in the covering up and, the, and the, the hiding of all the data to do with that event. But why that is, I suppose, is a bit more open to interpretation. And uh, Chris and Lou um, also mentioned towards the end of that interview that they're going to be in Washington, D.C. this week. So they've obviously got something in the works there. And um, the way that they talk, both of them are going to be in Washington, D.C. Last time, I think it was, that they mentioned about being in D.C., they were specifically involved with uh, Senator Gillibrand's team in getting the wording sorted for the Gillibrand Amendment. So that's the kind of thing they were doing last time they were there who knows what it is this time but you've got to think there's probably some links with again the air force uh, and the unwillingness to cooperate that we're seeing from the air force um, so there could be some elements of that of, of what they're doing that's just my speculation but we'll we'll have to wait and see all will become clearer as we go along but as i say i'm not going to talk about it too much um highly recommend watching the whole thing it's on somewhere in the skies youtube channel and as i said it'll be out on their streaming uh, side of things too but what i'd mentioned earlier was the chris mellon article um which uh, was for the debrief and it came out on february the 3rd 2022 and just kind of really, really briefly to sum up what the article is all about, it's basically, as I mentioned earlier, about the fact that Chris Mellon suspects that the Air Force know a lot more about what's going on um, with the UAP topic, and it's very suspicious and dubious as to why they're not actually cooperating and handing over the data uh, that they must have. You know, it seems logical that they have a lot more than they're letting on, and very few of the 144 cases reported by the task force actually came from the Air Force. And in fact, actually, I just checked just for the purposes of clarity, and the article actually says the dni's report cited 144 incidents since 2004 in which the u.s military detected these enigmatic craft although osd and dni public affairs refused to clarify it is my understanding that the u.s air force contributed very few if any of the 144 reports if one or two U.S. Air Force UAP reports did slip through, they are at best the exception that proves the rule. Otherwise, it was virtually all U.S. Navy reporting. Notably, in 80 cases, multiple sensor systems simultaneously corroborated the presence of UAP. So that's the way that Chris Mellon actually puts it in the article. So it seems pretty clear there that nearly all of these reports from what Chris Mellon is aware are coming from the Navy and perhaps they're being backed up by multiple sensor systems and possibly that those multiple sensor systems themselves could actually be Air Force sensor systems. So that's basically a bit of the background about the article, but this is, I feel this is such an important article. I really want to go through some key points and I'll probably be on this topic for a little while. Um, but as I say, I feel like it's so important that it's really worth going through. So I've, got, I've made a few um, quotes here that we're going to talk about in a bit more detail. So first of all, quote, the, this chasm between Navy candor and Air Force reticence is not the result of using different radar systems or monitoring different regions. It appears to be little more than the Air Force brass resisting civilian oversight of the UAP issue. This may seem harsh, but I don't know what other conclusion to draw. 
unquote. I mean, that is just a massive paragraph right there because, you know, Chris Mellon's clearly saying there it's nothing to do with the fact that the Navy have got, you know, different sensor systems and the Air Force are not picking things up or anything like that um, or they're looking at different areas so that would explain why the Navy are seeing things and the Air Force are not seeing things. That, that paragraph right there completely refutes that and actually it would make no sense at all that the Air Force are not picking these things up. Uh, and, and it seems to be that Chris Mowen's main point there is that it's purely because the Air Force are just resisting the congressional oversight of on this issue. They, they just don't want to get involved and they don't want to reveal any of the information that they've got. So I suppose the question there would be why. And obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the air force having you know crash retrieval debris full intact craft potentially depending on you know who you ask but at the very least you would expect that they would have some kind of sensor data which may be able to back up the things that the navy pilots saw um, at the nimitz event and as you'll probably know if you listen to this podcast i am a bit obsessed with the nimitz event and i've actually got a couple of bits in the works um essentially going back to revisit the Nimitz case with all the things that I've learned since starting the podcast, which is quite a, a lot really, because I wasn't that well up on a lot of things when I first started, but we've been doing this now eight, nine months. So you can imagine over that time, I've got a better understanding of the bigger picture and it'd be interesting to go back uh, to the Nimitz case. So I've got a few exciting bits in the pipeline on that. So keep an eye out. But anyway, sticking with the topic for now, um, there's another um, little uh, quote to lead into what we're going to talk about next so quote let's begin by briefly reviewing the massive extent of the air force's air and space surveillance capabilities the vast area duration and fidelity of u.s air force surveillance tech guarantee the collection of uap data unquote so again chris mellon there very clearly outlining the fact that the unbelievable quality of what the air force have available to them in terms of sensor technology you know, it doesn't make any sense that they wouldn't be able to pick up UAP, especially if other areas within the military are clearly picking things up. The Air Force are looking at those same areas. They've got as good, if not better, technology to actually surveil those areas. So it doesn't really make any sense why they're not being forthcoming with what they're, you know, they must have. So after that, in the article, Chris goes on to talk about all of the various advanced technology that the air force is in possession of for the purposes of monitoring uh, the skies and, and space so the first one is the space fence which is quite a cool name i thought um, but but essentially what the space fence is is the world's most advanced radar um, and and chris actually provides a link in the article which when you click it it links through to lockheed martin's website and on that page it's i've got all this information about the space fence radar system and uh, it says quote in march of 2020 the United States Space Force declared operational acceptance and initial operational capability of the Space Fence Radar on the Kwajalein Atoll in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, unquote. Probably pronounced that wrong, but you get the picture. Essentially, it's a very advanced radar system which tracks over 25,000 objects in orbit. 
Some travel in at speeds of up to 15,000 miles an hour and apparently can track the objects even down to the size of a marble in some cases. And this system is, is predominantly aimed at detecting things in orbit. And one of the main functions is uh, junk from destroyed satellites um, which could potentially harm um, US satellites and um, there's been I think there was a case of an Indian satellite which was destroyed by an anti-satellite weapon t as part of a test which created a massive amount of debris and uh, as we all know there was a Russian uh, version of that as well that happened quite recently where the Russians actually destroyed one of their own satellites in a test and there was a bit of a controversy of it because obviously that creates debris flying around up there which can damage other satellites. Um, so that's essentially what the space fence is predominantly designed to do um, but I mean the accuracy of it is quite amazing you know it, so things that are flying around at 15,000 miles an hour and even down to the size of a marble can be detected obviously that system would be highly accurate in detecting anything anomalous which may or may not enter the earth's atmosphere so you have to think that there's going to be some anomalous findings if other parts of the u.s military are detecting things and the air force have got access to this data from the space fence surely there must be something in there that that would be interesting to find out and you've got to think why are they not handing that over to the task force why are they not you know sharing that data and being forthcoming now obviously the thing is is that that's only become operational in the last couple of years so you know it's not as though they've got data going back to 2004 which could back up what happened at the nimitz event but still you've got to think over the last few years there'd be at least something that they can contribute maybe we'll see that in the future i mean but what you would hope is that the um with this new uh, uap office and the the essentially it's the legal requirement to hand over data we will start to see some of that coming from things like the space fence and being handed over to the uap task force but um i think obviously part of what chris mellon is doing here is actually trying to ensure that cooperation does take place because i believe he has seen some warning signs that actually even though the actual legislation has gone through they're still being a bit hesitant to cooperate uh, but anyway, moving on from that, I'll come back to the various motivations as to why this is all happening later on. So the next one is the solid state phased array radar system. And uh, while the, the space fence is tracking objects in orbit, in space essentially, as I was saying, um, North America is, is ringed by... Um, similar systems which are uh, massive phased array radars designed primarily to detect um, intercontinental ballistic missiles or sea launched cruise missiles which may be uh, directed at the united states so obviously the the numerous uap that the navy has been encountering off the east and west coast of the u.s you know in in theory should be detectable by these very very powerful systems which are which are run by the air force and what chris is saying is did none of these unbelievably powerful radars detect any of the uap that were reported by the nimitz group in 2004 the, the nimitz carrier strike group or the dozens of uap that were reported on the uh, the east coast by the f-18 fighter squadrons which started around about 2015 and this is a bit different to the space fence because this has been in operation for much longer. So you would think that these various 
um, cases we've heard about over the last couple of decades could have been picked up by this system. Interestingly, he also mentions about drones and kind of touches on the possibility of some of these objects being drones, um, which I thought was uh, was interesting. Again, that's a conversation that keeps cropping up because you can't discount drones in this day and age with drone technology getting better. I know there's people out there that will just say that everything's a drone. Um, but then again, I always think there's people out there that say that everything's a, a you know an extraterrestrial craft, which equally is not the case. So there's a, a middle ground somewhere that we have to find there. Um, and what Chris is saying is, quote, unmanned aircraft undeniably pose a serious and growing national security challenge. In 2019, a number of relatively unsophisticated drones launched by a Yemeni rebel group penetrated Saudi Arabia's sophisticated air defence system, causing damage that resulted in the temporary loss of 50% of Saudi refining capability. In 2020, Turkish drones figured prominently perhaps even decisively, in Azerbaijan's route of Armenian forces. For these and other reasons, it has become essential to be able to assess the effectiveness of SSPARS and other radar systems with regard to drones and UAP, unquote. So, interesting comments uh, and it highlights that old classic explanation of you know it's drones you know the fact is some of these objects actually might be drones advanced drones or as he's saying there in some cases not even particularly advanced drones can slip through air defense it's kind of a new thing that air defense systems have to deal with um but importantly at the end of that quote, Chris says drones and UAP, which does make a distinction between the two. So, and, and again, I would argue that these systems that we're talking about, these extremely advanced radar detection systems, you know, we need to be getting the information to be able to determine what percentage of these things actually are drones and which ones are truly anomalous. And that's where the five observables come in. You know, if you see a drone shooting up to 20,000 feet in half a second or whatever, then it's clearly not a drone that, that we know about on this, on this earth, you know? So even more reason that we get access to these, the systems or or even that the the uap task force gets access to these systems because let's be honest a lot of the information that's going to come from these systems is going to be classified in nature so we're not really talking about um you know this this stuff might not become available to us in terms of being the public um you know for, for a very long time but if the task force have got access to that information they can draw better conclusions which then may filter through into the actual public aspects of the reports that get generated because part of the way that the task force works is that there are fairly regular reports off the top of my head i can't remember exactly the times but i'm pretty sure it was quarterly or maybe it was twice a year um but on top of the public report that will be due out around about halloween 31st of october there will be reports before that provided to congressional committees so we might not see the contents of those reports because they may well be classified but if that information is being given to them then we may see the conclusions of that in in the unclassified report. But as I say, even more reason that these systems are, you know, being used to draw accurate conclusions as to what what on earth is going on here. 
Next point is the Global Infrasound Acoustic Monitoring Network. So, quote, this system is comprised of 60 stations in 35 countries that monitor low-frequency pressure waves in the atmosphere. Although built for the purpose of detecting nuclear explosions in support of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, this acoustic network reportedly has the ability to detect and track bolides and other objects transiting the atmosphere. So, unquote. So, this is... Um, Infrasound is very, very low frequency sound waves, which can be detected um, when things like uh, nuclear tests take place. And that, that's the main reason why this system is actually in operation. Now, I found that quite interesting because it's kind of a bit of a full circle. Um, the Project Mogul balloons that were essentially um, the secondary official explanation of what happened at Roswell, they were high altitude um the balloon detection balloons basically um and they were designed to actually detect essentially exactly what this infrasound acoustic monitoring network is doing high altitude balloons that can detect detect these um these certain frequencies that are indicative of a nuclear test and the original reason for those kind of devices was to monitor whether or not the soviet union was actually conducting uh, atomic testing and it's quite ironic that now chris moan is suggesting that we use that exact capability to actually detect uap and um, it's kind of gone full circle there hasn't it the explanation of what happened at Roswell turns out to be one of the tools we can use to actually detect new cases of, of UAP or, or back up historic cases. If we have access to the historic data, you can go back and find out whether there was anything strange that happened on a certain day when it, when a case actually happened. Um, and Chris says, quote, did the Air Force contact those running the global infrasound network to inquire about UAP detection? Inquiries should be made to determine whether this unique capability can contribute to the US government's understanding of UAP, unquote. So again, it's a good tool that you've got available to you. We've, we've got these ways of detecting certain things happening. We should be using them. So moving on, the US Space Surveillance Network. So this is uh, another potential source of information. And quote, this global program consists of at least 29 distinct worldwide space surveillance systems featuring the world's most powerful radars, including those in the SSPARS discussed above and others such as Site C6 at Eglin Air Force Base, which can reportedly detect a basketball sized object 22,000 miles away, unquote. So again, we're just talking about an extremely powerful radar system. And even though they are largely focused on space rather than the atmosphere, these systems are also used to detect sea-launched cruise missiles. So given the capabilities of those systems, some of them must have detected UAP during the period in question which is covered by the UAP task force, which is 2004 to 2001. So why have we not seen more information coming through from them? moving on because there's a lot of these to get through the space-based infrared system so the space-based infrared system is a network of satellites operating in medium earth highly elliptical and geosynchronous orbits that together provide continuous global coverage of infrared energy sources 
Now that's interesting because obviously we know that some UAP, such as the Tic Tac, only showed up on Flair at certain times. So obviously anybody who's familiar with the Nimitz case will know that Fravor actually got eyes on, so he actually saw the object. But then when Chad Underwood actually went to, to take the footage that we now know as the Flair video, it was not visible to the naked eye. According to the official report and from his comments afterwards, it was only visible via his FLIR system. So that means that the object may have been cloaked or for whatever reason it wasn't visible to the to the naked eye, but it was still detectable via infrared. So if there is some kind of a network of satellites with this infrared uh, system on board, you would be able to detect things even if they're cloaked or even if they're in whatever situation it is that means that they're not visible to the naked eye, they're still visible via the infrared spectrum. And interestingly, John Ramirez has talked about this quite a lot as well, and he's had direct career experience of operating sensors on satellites and things, and he has said that once the systems were actually upgraded to include infrared detection, that's when they started to see these uh, formations of objects uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. So you would have to assume that some of that would have been detected. And again, that could be valuable information to back up whether or not anything anomalous took place. Going back to what was mentioned earlier with drones and things, if you're looking for whether or not something was a drone, things like these systems would be really, really important. Because if you can see something coming in from outside the Earth's atmosphere, well, it's not a drone, is it? Unless somebody's got an extremely advanced drone, which can actually go up into space. But I mean, the likelihood of that is extremely slim. So that's all part of the reason why we need all of these extremely capable systems to give us that big picture. Because you can rule out things like drones, you can rule out things like, um, you know, uh, commercial aircraft, you can rule out things like large birds or any of the typical um, ex explanations which are put forward if you have access to these you know much much more detailed uh, elements of the bigger picture you can rule things like that out a lot quicker because obviously as i say there will be some that can be explained as some of those things but you know the bigger the bigger your understanding is the easier it is to be able to rule things like that out and focus on the truly anomalous cases so let's get through these last couple of bits. The active electronically scanned array radars. So in addition to the Navy's Aegis radar systems, any military platform outfitted with a modern AESA radar is another potentially valuable source of information because they can track even low radar cross-section UAP over large areas. So just another uh, source that's worth drawing information from if the information is forthcoming. And uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA's long-range radar systems feed NORAD and the US Air Force through the Joint Surveillance System. NORAD is privy to all of the data from FAA sites, the Federal Aviation Administration, as I just mentioned. So what about all of the FAA UAP reports submitted to NORAD between 2004 and 2021? Why were none of these incidents reported to the UAP task force or Congress by the Air Force? So as you can see, Chris really laying in there, really laying into the Air Force, um, whilst being his usual respectful and eloquent self, uh, you know, he's not he's not making any bones about it. The Air Force are not cooperating and we need to 
you know he's, he's, he's painted a target on the air force's back for everybody to aim at um you know and we just gotta just gotta hope that they do cooperate going forward but we'll see time will tell it's a very interesting development though so moving on from that then a couple of other bits that are mentioned because uh, again as i say i know i'm spending a bit of time on this article but i really think it's worth doing so quote for years the air force and navy have conducted airborne exercises in the same restricted areas off the east coast of the u.s known to aviators as w72a and w72b Curiously, while Navy F-18s have reported dozens of UAP incidents in these areas since 2015, the US Air Force would have us believe that its F-22 pilots, notwithstanding their superior sensor systems, failed to detect even a single UAP in the same areas. This might be explicable if the Navy was detecting highly classified assets from the US Air Force, or a US intelligence agency, but the UAP task force reportedly checked with the appropriate security officials and received assurances that this was not the case, unquote. So a, a lengthy quote there, but that's a really interesting point because that confirms that the UAP task force have checked with the appropriate people that wouldn't be in a position to know whether or not these things are black project tech, you know, and they're not they got the assurances that this is not American Black Project technology. And it also goes on to say, were the UAP reports submitted by pilots and others, but withheld because the Air Force is inappropriately concealing the information, perhaps within a waived special access program that permits it to withhold information from all but eight members of Congress. So... What Chris is saying there is there is that possibility that the reason that the Air Force is, is, is not cooperating is because they are inappropriately concealing information, perhaps because there's a waived special access program that actually permits it to withhold that information that it has from all but these eight members of Congress. I mean, Chris isn't definitively saying that that is what's taking place, but he's, he's putting that out there as a possibility. So I thought that was an interesting point as well. And it goes on in the article, and I would recommend reading the whole thing because it's, there's so many important points. I could literally talk about this um, for, for an hour, a couple of hours, probably just on this one article. So I'll, I'll try and wrap it up as best I can. But before I do, there's a really important case, which was on October the 25th, 2017. The Federal Aviation Authority detected an unidentified aircraft flying fast relative to what you would expect from commercial air traffic at around 35,000 feet over North Carolina towards Oregon. And in, a, in an effort to identify the aircraft, the FAA contacted commercial airline pilots in the vicinity who visually confirmed a white object travelling northbound at 35,000 feet. After the commercial passenger jets confirmed the position of this unknown vehicle, NORAD scrambled F-15Cs from the 142nd Air Wing in Portland, Oregon to investigate. Having the most advanced targeting system available, the so-called sniper pod, these F-15s were unable to locate, much less identify the vehicle. 
FAA and NORAD both confirmed the event, and NORAD publicly confirmed the launch of the F-15s. Was the Air Force or CIA or a contractor, perhaps, flying a classified aircraft at altitude near commercial air traffic without a transponder? Conceivably, but flying secret aircraft near commercial air traffic lanes is a potentially dangerous and therefore contrary to standard practice. Also, stealthy aircraft are designed to be virtually undetectable, typically black, like the SR-71, F-117 and the B-2 bomber, rather than white, like this unidentified aircraft. In fairness, the aircraft did not exhibit the instantaneous acceleration or hypersonic speed so often characteristic of UAP, so a conventional explanation is certainly possible, Nevertheless, this is a clear example of a known UAP incident within that 2004 to 2001 time frame that the Air Force did not report. So it's, it's very clear through all of this that the Air Force have data, they know about things, they've in this case publicly confirmed that they launched these two F-15s to investigate this thing, but as far as we know, and you would think that, that Chris is more aware of, of exactly what is contained within these 144 reports in the UAP um, task force preliminary assessment, the, the, the Air Force know about these things, they have data on these things, but they're not being forthcoming. So I think basically what he's saying there is that that's clear proof that UAP incidents do go on and are being looked into but for some reason are not being passed along the chain to the UAP task force and clearly this whole effort seems to me like it is one of the main reasons is to ensure that cooperation does take place going forward I mean this is um, it leads me actually into a tweet that I did uh, over the last couple of days uh, which was a couple of points basically um, to, to try and determine the motivation for, for Lou's comments and Chris's comments. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just quickly find my tweet that I put out because uh, it, it's one of those tweets that seem to just get a lot of uh, attention. A lot of people are interacting with it and things, which is really interesting in, in most cases. So I tweeted, two distinct, distinct shifts seems to have occurred recently with Lou, Chris and Cole. One, the shift in messaging to alien hypothesis best fits the data and two directly calling out the air force for not being forthcoming with the data they have the question is why now the problem with twitter is it's very hard to put across a nuanced version of what you think about a certain thing um so even when i'm reading that back now i'm thinking i should have worded that bit different and so on but that's twitter isn't it you're limited as to how much detail you can go in which is why I like the podcast because you can really, you know, really dig into what you're actually trying to say. So I'll just break it down a little bit about why I actually tweeted that and, and you know, the reasons behind it and so on. So the first, the second point there is directly calling out the Air Force for not being uh, forthcoming with the data they have. Pretty self-explanatory. I mean, um, the Air Force clearly haven't been forthcoming they've got the capabilities to detect things and to either prove or disprove things that the navy are claiming but unfortunately that information is not coming along which is baffling and you would certainly think that now lou and chris's mission of a large part of that mission was to get congressional interest i think lou elizondo has said in the past that was one of his main goals somebody i speak to on the podcast 
and uh, offline as well actually um frank milburn one of his main uh, papers was all about the fact that lou and chris their main mission was to be able to unite all of these special access programs get congressional interest to actually provide a funding for a really thorough uap program which unites all of the um, fragmented special access programs and uh, the compartmentalized nature of these programs and unite them all so that actual progress can be made and you've got to think that part of the mission was successful congressional interest is there we've got the Gillibrand amendment which has now been signed into law so they're looking at the next step and to me the next step is trying to find the areas which are firstly have access to the most valuable data and also go after the areas which are the least cooperative now i've thought about this quite a lot and it's pretty clear isn't it from chris mellon's article that they've identified the air force as being the area that have first of all the best data and the most data available the best sensor systems and also that exact same area the air force are the least willing to cooperate with bringing that data forward so it makes sense logically doesn't it now they've secured congressional interest the next step is to go after the air force and as i say you could there's a lot of speculation you can do as to what chris mellon has actually seen in terms of data from the inside to suggest that the air force do have um you know certain things now he may have he may have heard snippets of information that they've got a reverse engineering program which he has hinted at in that article let's be honest he says there that there could be a, a waived special access program that that is allowed to skirt congressional oversight chris mellon himself mentions that specific point in the article so you've got to think part of his motivation for doing this is because he suspects there is a crash retrieval program within the air force which is something that's you know widely discussed in the ufo community but perhaps not as known about within the wider public so he's basically slipping that in there um for, for for people to find out more about basically the other thing is that the air force are suspected to have um the nimitz tapes so again not exactly confirmed and factual but there are reports and, and rumblings within the community that the air force were the ones that confiscated uh, those the tapes and probably had something to do with removing the deck logs from all of the various ships involved in that incident and probably have other data as well from various sensor systems that would be able to shed a lot more light on what actually happened that day now the motivations for why they're concealing that is a bit more complicated but it certainly seems that you know there's some very good reasons to go after the air force in this case and uh you know you've got to think that 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 is you know why why chris has chosen this particular course of action and let's not forget lou elizondo and chris mellon everything they do is carefully considered so they don't just kind of blurt things out everything's very carefully planned and lou elizondo has talked about this a bit more than chris as to there's a plan in place and it's the the old analogy of the gears on a car you know this this process is, is going through the gears and you've got to think that the previous gear was getting that congressional interest developing international awareness and then now that seems to have worked pretty well the next one is really going after the air force for that high quality information however deep that goes 
they have things that would be very valuable to bring to the table and we they're making sure that that happens so very interesting and the other thing was the the shifting messaging to alien hypothesis best fits the data now this was really fascinating to me because i talked about this on the podcast i feel like some people maybe missed this um you know from what happened it was it was the interview that uh, chris did with i think lua was on that interview as well and, and avi Loeb as well on the um max moscovich uh, channel they did uh, an interview and, and and at some point in that interview chris said the the et hypothesis best fits the data now if you've been listening to my podcast for the last couple of months you'd have heard me talking about that quite a bit because i really kind of banged on about that particular point because that's pretty huge isn't it like chris saying the ET hypothesis best fits the data. I mean, it seems to me like over the years there has been a gradual ramping up in language being used, uh, you know, in that particular area from Chris. Now, I was talking after on the back of that tweet, I was talking to a few people, and, and a couple of people kind of rightly pointed out that um, Chris has always leaned more towards the et hypothesis and lou has kind of leaned more towards some other aspects and the kind of more um you know unusual more complex um explanations for what could be behind the phenomenon and that is true i mean even if you look back a couple of years now that that has been the general way that each of them has had their own preferred hypotheses that they're willing to talk about but my point was not so much that like all of a sudden chris is saying that now it's et or whatever because i do think that he has hinted at that since you know as long as i can remember but the difference is the willingness to use the language which is the key point and that was what i was getting at in the tweet again not that easy to put across in a, in a tweet but probably makes more sense the way i'm describing it now because it's the shift in messaging that's the key point there not that chris has changed his mind and now believes that it's alien or whatever because he probably did think that all along but it's the fact that i remember first off hearing about these anomalous objects and we don't know what they are but they're doing some very strange things and then that kind of change to vehicles there was a point where both Chris and Lou started to refer to vehicles and these are very very subtle things because if you are in the UFO community you may already think that they are vehicles so you perhaps wouldn't notice the change in language there but for Chris Mellon to go on to big news channels and start talking about vehicles that's very different to saying it's just an object we don't know what it is you know so it's there's a real distinction point from um you know we don't know what they are they're not ours they're not an adversary so what are they to being okay now we're actually describing these things as vehicles as technology and that kind of happened around about the same time both lou and chris started to refer to them as vehicles and then following on from that we heard chris's explanation shift to the extraterrestrial hypothesis best fits the data and for me the very recent comments from chris were the alien hypothesis best fits the data and this was on a, an interview with the hill um a video interview where chris actually says that and that 
proper blew my socks off <laughs> yeah. because the et hypothesis best fits the data is one thing but using the a word you know that's kind of the word that that if you wanted to be taken seriously you avoid you know and, and for chris mellon to come out and say that i mean i suppose you could argue that it may have been a slip of the tongue but i really don't think it would be you've got to think that that must have been a carefully considered use of language and it does for me it represents a ramping up of of the language being used and and very clearly saying look we think this is probably aliens you know which is absolutely wild and it does kind of it does kind of make you think of you know where where that conversation is going next you know i mean can it get much more direct than that i don't know but then again even within that it's complicated isn't it because obviously you know does that mean that chris purely thinks that they are extraterrestrial vehicles and that there is no other aspects to it not necessarily because there is and again quite a few people were mentioning this as well um in in reply to my tweet is there's that possibility that he could be slightly simplifying his viewpoint a little bit because he knows that it's going to get quoted and, and it's going to be spread um, you know, through various other news outlets. And if you start talking about, yeah, these things might be coming through a portal and coming from another dimension and travelling through time and you know, there's a cataclysms involved potentially and all this, that may be a step too far. So it could be that Chris, from what Chris has seen, he does genuinely think that the ET nuts and bolts thing is the most likely explanation. Or it could also be that he has simplified his viewpoint just slightly um, to make it kind of appropriate for what he's trying to put out there. As I say, it's all kind of speculation, but I think it's interesting to try and figure out things like that because it, it does give you a bit of an insight into what Lou and Chris are actually doing, gradually ramping up the language. And um, it, it can, if you if you understand how they ramp these things up, I think it gives you a bit of insight into perhaps where they're going next and areas to to look into. Even the use of certain words is a breadcrumb, in in my opinion. You know these breadcrumb trails that not actually saying something but giving hints as to to the directions to look in. So yeah, I thought that was worth talking about. Um, quite an interesting little uh, little occurrence that happened. And finishing off with. Another interview which took place recently, uh, which was on the Theories of Everything YouTube channel with Kurt Jaimungle, and this was with Colm Kelleher and George Knapp. So obviously Colm Kelleher, one of the principal people involved in the ORSAP program and one of the co-writers of the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon book, George Knapp needs no introduction anyway, but uh, you know, very respected journalist from over the years of looking into the UFO topic amongst other topics and another one of the co-writers of the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon book. So there were some quite interesting points mentioned in this, um, just to pick on a couple of them. Again, I always, when I talk about these things, I really recommend going and watching the whole thing if you find the points mentioned interesting, because there's no better way than to um, get into the proper nitty gritty of it and watch the entire thing in context. And, you know, I'm just giving my opinions on what I think about these talking points. You might think something completely different, or you might see something that I've missed. So it's really worth going watching. And we're talking about, in some cases, I mean, this is like a two hour long video. I'm going to ramble on about it for five, ten minutes, but two hours worth of stuff on there for you to watch if you find it interesting. And I, re I really recommend that you that you do. 
uh, and also you know support the, the original source of this information because Kurt Jaimungle's channel very very interesting and it's always good to go on there you know drop a like on the video or whatever and, and, and support the fact that he was actually the one to bring this forward so um, to start off with George Knapp explains uh, that these things have been recorded throughout human history on every continent in every culture in one form or another and he gives a bit of speculation as to what's potentially behind them it kind of links into what i was just talking about with chris mellon is is he simplifying his ideas on what's behind these things a little bit um, to the et alien hypothesis um or is that genuinely what he thinks is the the main you know explanation for this because it is probably a lot more complicated than just one thing or the other but Knapp goes on to say quote they've been with us a long time maybe been here longer than us but we still don't really know what they are unquote and I thought it was interesting and also uh, as I say I've watched the first bit of the Dr Gary Nolan interview on engaging the phenomenon and he makes a similar point he says that these things have probably been here for thousands of years throughout human history and perhaps even before humans were even a thing you know for all we know and they haven't revealed themselves to us was exactly what Dr Gary Nolan said which is I suppose debatable as to what your class is revelation you know like even the fact that the, the, the tic tac was chased around by those jets is you could say that that is that the whatever these things are revealing themselves to us but they certainly haven't you know rolled out a red carpet turned up to the white house or turned up to the you know buckingham palace and, and invited themselves inside to introduce themselves to the human race they've not been very blatant about it and you've got to think why what what can you gather from the motivations there do they just not care about humans do, are they completely oblivious to us it doesn't seem that they are because there's a lot of interactions recorded so why would they want to interact with humans for hundreds and hundreds of years influence what we do potentially you know even if you go so far as to look at abduction reports you just pick us up out of our beds and you know do various things to us and show us things and let us experience a little bit of their world and then just drop us back into our normal reality again very difficult to get your head around but you know Knapp goes on to talk about in, in that interview how the ET kind of paradigm way of looking at it is where he started but that changed over time and I think that's common to a lot of people who get into the, the UFO topic is you initially look at it like it's just nuts and bolts extraterrestrial vehicles and then it actually becomes clear that there's a lot of weirder elements to, to it whether you like it or not because when i first got into this you know deeply over the last couple of years the whole thought of like weird goings on and and you know werewolves and so i remember the first time i heard somebody talking about bigfoot um and linking it to ufos it, it was like oh man what what is this but unfortunately or maybe not unfortunately it depends how you look at it you can't avoid it there are weird things that go on around this topic and i kind of think of it now as and i talk about ufos and associated phenomena because whether you like it or not there are weird strange phenomena that seem to occur that coincide with uap 
And again, I don't understand why or what, what that's all about, but there's no escaping that. And Knapp goes on to talk about uh, reading Jacques Vallée's books, which Jacques Vallée essentially talks about how ancient religions observed entities and all the cultures around the world have reported strange goings on and, and lights in the skies, the, the spirit world, strange mythical beings, and, and perhaps the strange tales of the past actually are based on real things. And, and maybe some of these stories, in some cases, actually are literal. You know, it, in some ways, it would make more sense that entire civilizations, you know, many, many thousands of people lived their lives based on these experiences. You know, it's tempting to say, oh, it's a lot of old superstitious nonsense and things like that. But what if it actually isn't? It does give you a bit of a whole different way of looking at religions and, and supernatural stories, you know, throughout history. And it's like, if you think about the ancient people of the British Isles, you know, you're talking about stone circles like Stonehenge going back many, many thousands of years. And those cultures, you know, relied on wisdom from Druids. And the Druids actually used to take mushrooms and things like that to be able to communicate with the spirit world and learn things from entities that they witnessed and experienced in this spirit realm and then the other members of the society relied on that wisdom that had been learned through the druids in the spirit world to inform the way that they should live their lives and that's just one example of it but there's you know many many other examples of similar things throughout the ancient world if you look at the native american religion they had medicine men you know and, and all across various parts of um, south america the similar things shaman and, and medicine men people who are entrusted to journey into other realms learn from entities that they come into contact with and then use that knowledge to inform the way that humans should live our lives in the normal reality that we live in if you look at some of the ancient Eastern religions, similar accounts, uh, more to do with meditation. You know, again, meditation, people can reach certain states where they actually can learn things about the nature of reality. There's definitely other things going on about our reality that, that can be tapped into. And perhaps the combination of all these weird things that get witnessed, like uh, the strange beings at Skinwalker Ranch and other similar locations, and, and perhaps... You know, there's something to do with the fabric of reality that's being stretched a little bit. And, and be beyond that fabric of reality as we know it, maybe there is something else. Maybe there are other entities that, that you know, are the same entities that people are witnessing when they take ayahuasca or DMT or the, the mushrooms that the druids used to take in ancient times here in the United Kingdom. So it's, it's fascinating to consider. I mean, I can't say for a fact that this is the case and that's the case, you know, I've no idea, but it's really interesting to think about and there does seem to be links there. If you think about the ancient stories as well of religions and and, and, and just um, mythical tales, you know, you think about great floods. Every single culture around the world has a story of a great flood. You know, everybody saw that as a nice story that didn't really have any meaning 
you know, just symbolic perhaps, or perhaps not every, but that might be a bit strong. Some people probably didn't, but the majority of people just look at stories of great floods as being some kind of symbolic tale, you know, uh, a fable, if you will. But as Graham Hancock and others have suggested, there's now a growing body of evidence that there actually was a cataclysmic event which caused massive global disasters brought about the beginning of an ice age which wiped out large parts of the life on this planet and plunged the whole earth into uh, an ice age which went on for a period of time and then perhaps as a a, a kind of a hang-on of the original cataclysm certain fragments of that massive asteroid or comet type object then actually kind of came around again and and impacted the earth once again this time causing the rapid melting of the of the ice sheets and and a, and a, a very sudden rise in sea level which all of these things are factually accepted that there was a rapid melt there was a, a rapid increase in the uh, the sea level and Again, depending on how far you want to go with that, the possibility that there was a relatively advanced civilization on the planet, which was then potentially covered underwater, like the Atlantis stories and things like that. It, it depends how how far you want to go down that rabbit hole, I suppose. But the point there is that great floods were a story that everybody thought was just a nice fanciful story that was interesting but now we're starting to realize that these stories that have been built into our civilizations built into our society actually do have a factual basis and it fascinates me the thought that perhaps over the coming years we'll learn that religions fairy stories you know supernatural tales and and myths perhaps some more of those will have a factual basis to them and it could end up being that it gives us a whole different understanding of, of reality. But, you know, generally, I think if you look at our history, real events have been told in story form. That's kind of how information was passed on, you know. Um, the bards of old used to go from town to town telling stories in song form, and that's how people learned about events. So it would kind of make sense that religions and myths have had real information built into them maybe not all some of it might be you know enhanced for the purposes of storytelling but a lot of them probably are based on factual events as we see with the great the tales of the great flood there's even a um the um aboriginal australians have a tale of a a, a, a giant frog called tiddalik and the idea of this frog was that it was so greedy drinking water that it drank and drank and drank and drank and until the end it became absolutely enormous full of water and then essentially exploded and the water then flooded forth across the land and and wiped out you know a a large part of, of the life on on the on the country and again that is essentially an ancient tale of a flood even though it's a kind of a bit, you know, ramped up a bit in terms of the entertainment value, clearly there wasn't actually a frog that drank all the water and that kind of thing, but it's another tale of a great flood and a good example of how a story can be embellished a little bit but still contain that factual information to be able to pass that information on. And obviously the the, the obvious one is, is the great flood mentioned in the Bible with Noah and his ark. Anyway... 
moving on to a couple of other points and this is just uh, the last point I'm going to get to because I've already talked enough for one day but this is something I've heard mentioned a bit recently and again it was I think it was John Ramirez that I first heard mention this uh, over the last few months which is black helicopters turning up so very intriguing not sure what to make of this if I'm honest but I'm going to talk about it because I thought it was fascinating so in the NIDS era, there was a gentleman by the name of Captain Keith Wolverton stationed very close to Maelstrom Air Force Base in the 70s and 80s. And apparently he claims that there was a wave of UFO sightings that were jointly investigated by the Air Force, who are obviously in control of the base, and the local police in close cooperation. And apparently jet aircraft were launched to intercept UFOs and uh, yeah, on, on numerous occasions. And one of the strange aspects of it were that black helicopters appeared around the time of these UFOs being sighted. And neither the Air Force or the police had any idea where they were coming from. And George Knapp suggests that it may be some government agency who were able to operate things like these black helicopters with impunity, knowing that no one will take it seriously. And that that's an interesting point because you could apply that to a lot of other things as well. But because these government agencies know that there is such a stigma about these things, they can in some cases operate things like the experimental aircraft or, or whatever it might be with relative impunity because they know that nobody's really going to take it seriously there might be a bit of a news article about a ufo that was spotted but really it doesn't tend to get much traction i mean that is changing but you can see how especially historically in like the 70s and 80s they could get away with a lot of things because they, they know the level of ridicule that these things get when they're talked about in public as i say hopefully that is changing but Certainly, when you look back, you know they they were they would have been able to to do those kinds of things. But Nap Nap concludes that in many cases, these black helicopters are both some unknown phenomenon, assuming that shape, and our government monitoring that phenomenon. And that point is also backed up by Colm Kelleher, uh, Colm Kelleher, who says exactly the same thing. So. I mean, I've heard of, of UAP being able to shapeshift and appear in different ways. I've heard reports of, um, in some cases, UAP actually disguising themselves as commercial aircraft. And I suppose what Knapp's getting out there is the potential for you know the phenomenon to actually appear as a conventional aircraft. And that could be what these black helicopters represent. And he's saying that in, it may actually be in some cases the government actually monitoring the phenomenon as well. Really bizarre one. Not sure what to make of it entirely at this point, but it's. Um, I thought it was worth mentioning. It'd be interesting to hear what you guys think of that. Um, if anyone's got some thoughts on, on the, the black helicopters thing or have heard more information about it, I'd love to hear more about that one if anybody can uh, send it my way. 
but uh, I think that is enough for one day because I can feel my voice starting to go and I've been talking for a long time now so we'll call it a day there so thank you very much for anybody who has listened to this point because you clearly are a hardcore listener of the podcast if you've made it to this stage an hour and seven minutes almost in so um, it's good of you to be here till the end and uh, please do remember if you can to leave a, a review five star reviews apparently make a massive difference to the podcast in terms of algorithms and all that kind of stuff that i don't really understand and um, something to do with if you have good reviews on your podcast then apple or spotify or whatever platform recommend your podcast more readily to other users who may be interested so obviously it's always great to get more and more people involved in the conversation and as we go along you know i would love to be able to dedicate more time to the podcast and as the podcast grows it's you know we can get better guests and all the rest of it which then in turn i can create better stuff for you guys to listen to so please do drop a, a positive review if you enjoy the podcast and, and want to support in that way obviously patreon as well thanks to all the patreon supporters i'm actually doing a ama how do you say it ama <laughs> and ask me anything on patreon so that is exclusive for uh, patreon supporters i may do an ama on the actual main podcast as well at some point uh, but for now this one that i'm working on uh, currently is going to be exclusively for the patrons just again as a, as a thank you for supporting the podcast uh, financially because it really does help to pay all the associated bills and whatnot and hopefully keep growing this thing and i can spend more and more time on it as we go along uh, i mean it's it's a long way off but I would absolutely love one day to be able to do this full time. It would be absolutely amazing. It's a it's a far away goal, but you know, you've got to have goals in life, haven't you, to aim for. And if that was the case, I'd buy an amazing camera and I'd go around and I'd be like Bolton's answer to Jeremy Corbell, <laughs> making films and stuff like that and interviewing people and, and uh I may even buy a nice sharp suit like Fox Mulder and go around the place in in my own UFO mobile, uh, like uh, UAPX have got with all the sensor devices on it. Uh, I can dream, you know. But anyway, until next time, make sure you take it easy, stay curious, and I'll hopefully catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.